welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning news producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Wandika Gale, author of the short story collection, Motherland and Other Stories, published by the UK-based P-Pal Tree Press in 2020. Wandika is a Jamaican writer, visual artist, pianist, and assistant professor of creative writing at Spelman College. She has received writing fellowships from Kimbilio Fiction, Callaloo, the Hurston Wright Foundation, the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing, and the Watering Hole. She has a PhD in English Creative Writing from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Her writing has appeared in Prairie Schooner, The Rumpus, Transition, Interviewing the Caribbean, and other journals and magazines. Her work has also been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. In this episode, we talk about the immigrant experience, navigating microaggressions, publishing with a small press, and the power of literature to make the particular universal. Black and published family, let's welcome Wandika to the show. So, Wandika, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Anytime. And uh, congratulations. I know your book comes out in two days in the U.S., although it's already available in the U.K. It comes out in two days in the U.S., right? Right. I mean, technically, it's available through Amazon. So it's the same publisher and everything. So it's just available at, through Amazon and other American published um, bookstores. Okay. So we're going to get to Motherland and other stories in a second, but I always like to start the show by asking, when did you know that you were a writer? Oh, that's a good question. I think it was pretty early, but I didn't want to kind of admit it to myself because I come from a very practical family. You know, they want to know that you're going to do a profession that is, you know, going to make sure that you have a job that's stable and so on. But I remember that I used to walk around with these legal pads when I was about eight. I was still having trouble with spelling, but, you know, I have older siblings. And so I'd write stuff down and little stories and say, do you guys want to hear what I wrote and ask them how to spell things and bug them? Uh, but more seriously, when I was a teenager and I realized that I can write about people like me because I was writing about girls with flowing blonde and red hair with green eyes and things like that so I started to realize when I got a little bit older as a, a an older teenager that I can write about things that happen to me people who look like me and so I think that's when it started but more in earnest I think when I went to college and I said okay I'm going to do mass communication because that's practical it can become a journalist but I'm also going to do English, because that's what I really like. I like to write. So did you double major in mass communication I, English? I, I did. I mean, technically, it's a double degree, because at the time, they did not have a double major like that. I went to the registrar, and I said I wanted to upgrade my minor, because at the time, I was doing mass communication with a minor in English. I wanted to upgrade it to a major, so I'd have two. And she said, no, you'd have to do it as another degree and have a second minor. 
the, the funny thing is that about maybe the next semester, they did start to do double majors in that way. <laughs> I was so mad, but maybe... What school did you go to? I went to Northern Caribbean University. It was first West Indies College. And when I went there, we were just transitioning from West Indies College to Northern Caribbean University in Mandeville, Jamaica. I have the same, uh, I guess, degree. I was able to double major in mass communication, mass media studies, so journalism, and then yeah. also English creative writing, creativity. Okay. So I have right. the same thing. No, no, no. Yeah. That's cool. So like, what was the journey for you going from, you know, college in the in the Caribbean and doing this this double degree to getting into your career and writing and trying to balance the both sides as a journalist, which is very specific, yeah. and the writing, which can be a little bit more loose and more fun? Hmm. Uh, because I did mass communication, I did have the opportunity to do an internship at the Gleaner Company, which is a newspaper company in Jamaica. And so what that gave me was being able to write on deadline, being able to write concisely, didn't really love it as much as writing more. The features type stories was what I realized that I loved. And then I went on to do a master's in English. And that took me on the journey of focusing more on the creative side than the journalism side. But interestingly, I still do, uh, I still teach journalism type courses at Spelman, but mostly I'm there to teach creative writing. Um, so that was interesting because being there as an intern and then going back to work there at the Gleaner and then going to do my master's in English and then continuing to, to do the PhD in creative writing was really um, how interesting how everything that I learned helped me in a way, you know, because as I said, with journalism, you have to be, you, you have to be de- detailed oriented, and you, but you also have to be concise. You have to be on time. You can't just like, you know, you have to wait, make sure that you follow your deadlines. And when you're, when I found it difficult was when I didn't have any preset deadlines, because when you're writing your dissertation, nobody's going to be like knocking on your door, like, are you writing? So I had to set my own deadlines and like commit to it in that way. And so it's led me here to teaching and writing. And it's really interesting how all of that developed. What made you want to get a PhD in English? And like, what does that entail? The thing is, I actually wanted to do an MFA. But I was in Jamaica looking at all of the stuff, researching it, not really understanding the culture of what that meant. And the MFA is so, um, what's the word? It's difficult in the sense that they only accept a few people each year in a lot of programs. And there, of course, there are hierarchies of what kind of programs that you can get in. And maybe there are in-house people who are there who continue and there's no space. So I had a few letdowns. And then I said, you know what, I'm just going to do the master's in English and focus on writing studies. And then, because, I mean, I didn't cast a wide enough net and time was running out. I think I submitted to about three schools, which is not that many. And so I went to do the master's at um, Andrews University. But then I knew that if I wanted to teach that not having an MFA, which is a terminal degree in and of itself, I would have to continue to do the PhD. So that's why I decided. And then I can focus. And so 
I said, I'm going to focus on creative writing, fiction. And it was more of a generous program because you have to do know about the other genres. So I did have to do a poetry workshop. And when I was doing the master's, we did do, um, yeah, I did poetry there too. And you have the option to do um, playwriting as well. So um, that was what motivated me. Not because... I would say in and of myself, I said, oh, I just want to have a PhD just to have it because so many people told me, listen, don't do it if you don't foresee how you're going to use it because it may not even be necessary for what you want to do. Because even if you think of another discipline, there are some people I know who they, they have a master's, but if they went and they went through all the stress of doing a PhD, they still would make the same money. They still would have, yes, maybe they would have more information and you know, and do more research, but is it going to Im- improve the quality of life for you to do a PhD? So don't do it just because it's the next step. I see that happen so many times that people are like, why am I even doing this? <laughs> you know, but for me, I saw where it fit in because when I looked at the job market, they, they said, you have an MFA or a PhD, you know? So, and then even now some places are a little bit, you know, predisposed to look at those people with PhDs, even though the MFA is a perfectly terminal degree. So So I have two questions from there. Um, What was your dissertation on and or like for your creative writing? And then how are you using your degree? Good question, because the dissertation was on the Afro-Caribbean immigrant experience in America and England. Well, I narrated on, I narrowed it down to America in terms of the critical introduction because the school I went to, which was the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, they have the option for you to do, like, if you're not in a creative writing, and let's say you do literature, you, of course you write um, a book-length dissertation, but the creative students have to also write a critical introduction plus a creative piece. So the bulk of it is creative, but you also have to demonstrate that you know how to analyze. You can interrogate theory and look at what the research is saying as well as close read text and things like that. So for me, I did that as an introduction looking at the Afro-Caribbean experience in America about, it was called Dreams, um, displacement and disillusionment, looking at those three things. What makes people want to come here? How do they feel when they are here? And what makes them feel disillusioned by being here as an immigrant? And to couple it, I worked on these short stories, which ultimately became the book. So the short stories looked at a lot of those kind of themes of home um, you know, it being unstable, looking for belonging, feeling excluded, you know, all these different things that you experience as a a Caribbean immigrant in any of these countries. And so in that way, definitely it came out of the dissertation. The funny thing is that I didn't go there with the intention to write a collection of short stories. I went there to write a novel, which was based on Nina Simone's for women. <laughs> yeah, I am I am actually still working on that. That's my next project. And and I've gotten some interest because I've excerpted some of what I've written so far in some journals. So the funny thing is I started to write that, but then it wasn't coming. And I said, eh, 
I have this idea for a story. I'm going to work on that. And then I realized what I was doing as procrastination actually could be the dissertation. And so that was how a lot of the stories came into being. And I said, oh, let me just work on these. And I can always work on the novel at a later date. Oh, wow. I, I laugh like that because my debut novel is called Four Women. And it's oh. inspired by Nina Simone's Four Women. It is oh, so funny really? that you said that. Yes. Wow. That's so interesting. I mean, I was worried in a way because I know that being Caribbean and being, yes, I am of African descent. I'm Afro-Caribbean, but I know that Nina Simone is sort of the African-American icon, kind of like people fiercely hold to her. And I was saying, well, how would they feel if I made one of her car- one of the characters that she sings about Jamaican? who mm-hmm. comes to America. And so that's where it came from. So I, I foresee doing more than one story in a sequence, like a novel. The first one that I'm working on right now is My Name is Sweet Thing. So I started with the third voice, even though it doesn't, the song doesn't start with her, but I was like, I like this person. I think I know her story. And I started doing that. And I was going to do all of the characters in that song, but it didn't come together that way. And I realized I only really feel I'm vibing with Sweet Thing. I'm going <laughs> to write about her and then the others, I'll, I'll do some more research and work on that. But that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I can't wait to read that. But um, from my book, it's it's only loosely based from Nina Simone. It, I called it Four Women because the book is about these four different women. But if right. you read them closely and you're familiar with the song, you can line up their descriptions that I give of how they look with the descriptions right. of the women in the song and kind of see those similar characteristics and, and traits and stuff. But that is that that is wild. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and congrats. When when does that come out? Do you have a time or? Oh, that book came out. It's out. It came out oh. in. In 2017 okay that was my first book that yeah. that's my baby yeah. um but like let's get to these stories because yeah you're the second person I've talked to who said they have a short story collection but they wanted to work on the novel but the stories were coming first yeah so, you know you in the collection you're talking about race you're talking about interrogation with the white world you're mm-hmm. talking about a lot of different things and you're you're jumping continents from the Caribbean and Jamaica to London and the UK, and then also in Louisiana and the United States. How um, has your own life informed these characters that you've created and have put onto the page in this in this book? Okay, um, I would say that even though some people have said, well, one of the stories is set in Lafayette. Is this really about you? But no, th- what I try to do is that I think about setting in a way that was real to me because I may have experienced it. So I went to school in Lafayette, Louisiana. So two of the stories are set there because I could use texture. I could talk about things that I was seeing. And also because, for instance, you know, fun fact, Walker Woman was based on an actual woman that I looked through the window and saw that she was walking in circles around the apartment complex, just talking to herself. And so I said, well, I can imagine a whole life. for the- I've never, ever talked to her. <laughs> But I was creating a whole story about her life. And as it relates to the motherland story, some of what happens in that story, you know, some of, you know, were things that bits and pieces were 
things that happened to other people in my life. You know, my sister's best friend went to, you know, um, England and worked in a care home. And so I used that kind of premise. So things like that, where it's not largely based on any one specific experience from a person, but bits and pieces. And mainly I wanted to express this idea of, well, what is it really like for you as a Black person in these spaces? Mm. And because I experienced that, I was the only Caribbean national in the in the English program, in the PhD English program. And so many times when they had these creative, right? well, I should say creative writing because there were about three of us in the whole program at the time. But in the creative writing section, I was the only one. So when they had these creative writing events, I would look around the room and I would be the, the only one, you know? So that kind of thing where the feeling of what does it, what is it like to be so outside of yourself all the time, constantly interrogating, constantly seeing yourself in this kind of third person way. And only when you are by yourself can you kind of recenter. And so that's where a lot of it came from, where the feeling of being different in these situations, missing home, homesickness is something fierce that I realized that, you know, they have many of them go through when they come to America, um, even if they're escaping something negative back home, you know, and uh, also, with Motherland story came over several years because I had only been to. Uh, I, well, I only I only went to um, England once at that time, and I only gone to Oxford. And I was writing about these things, all these things in London, and I realized that for it to make sense, then I would have to think about how can I use the things that I'm seeing in Oxford in the story, that kind of thing, you know? So in terms of setting, in terms of the feeling about being different, some things were my own feelings, other things were things people translated to me, and things were things I observed on my own. Where? And some things I made up, obviously. You know? <laughs> we're going to say a lot of things you made up, so nobody tries to say that, that that's them okay. in the story. <laughs> right. I say, yeah. Yeah. No, I was asked, where are you from in Jamaica? I'm from St. Catherine originally. Yeah, so I went to school in Mandeville, but, you know, my family's home is in Linstead, St. Catherine. Spent some time in Spanish Town, too, when I was younger. So, yeah. Um, so with that background, being from the Caribbean, being Black, and then going into these spaces, you say you gave that that kind of, that identity, almost like an identity crisis to your characters where they mm -hmm. couldn't fully be themselves. How did you feel when you were going through your programs and, and your studies and, and stuff? Because there's one thing, there's there's one identity associated with being Black and being an only in a white space, but then you're also Black and an immigrant. You're also Caribbean. Your, your accent is very pronounced. So how did that how did people relate to you or how did you find yourself in that situation, almost being like a double minority in those situations? Oh, wow. I had to teach when I started the PhD program and I didn't have an assistantship for two years, you know, but when I did, I had to teach. Yeah, that was, you know, crazy. I would not recommend anybody start a PhD program now have not any kind of funding. But when I started to teach, that was where it came out a lot because 
I thought in a way, okay, these students are different than me, but they're students, you know. And what I found is that when they would write in the evaluation, one of them said, oh, she speaks Jamaican. Even though I'm speaking to you in the same way I'm speak- I would have spoken to them, just with an accent, but I would not be speaking in Patois. But they would say things like, speaking, you know, she's, she's speaking to us in Jamaican. Or they might say, makes everything about race. Even though when I was teaching composition, the theme was multiculturalism. <laughs> and so there was no escaping it. I had to talk about it. And so that, that, I, that kind of friction of being aware, it's not like neon sign, oh, this is what's going on. I know, and they know that it's not just about they're saying, oh, um, you are overdoing it. It's that they're uncomfortable with my being the one to bring up these things to them. And because I am different, because I am black, because I am female, so many different things. And also to, on the other side, being a student in those settings, I stopped writing and I'm embarrassed to say this. I don't know why I keep repeating it. I stopped writing for five years, poetry. I still worked on my fiction, but I stopped writing poetry for five years because poetry was sort of my love child kind of thing where I could do it when I felt, you know, in the mood and fiction was more rigorous, but poetry was like a love letter to myself kind of thing. But when I had to take these workshops, I had a really negative experience with the professor who he said things like, this is the wrong sociocultural environment for your work. The students may not be able to interact with it because I had wanted them to, I wrote a dub poem. And in Jamaica, I don't know if you're familiar, maybe you are. A dub poem is a two beat poem. You just go, you know, and you, you, you're kind of saying these lines over the beat. And so I had the class do it and they seemed like they were involved in it, but he didn't really think that they could interrogate it in the same way that they could dissect, let's say, a villanelle or any of these other formal, you know, sonnet type, you know, or or anything like that. So, and I always just felt like not down a peg every time, every time, because you would keep saying these things and write these long notes about, okay, um, one line sticks out to me. He said, Tom Petty said, it doesn't have to be good to be rock and roll. And goes into talking about my poem that it's, you know, kind of generic. And he's basically saying, you can call it poetry, but it's not good. You know? Wow. So I was, In class? I mean, no, he wrote that. He didn't say that in class. Oh. He wrote it on my paper. And then there were, the, the way that, and that was an education in itself because it taught me how not to lead a workshop. Because when I teach a workshop now, I know I have to make sure I set parameters so that it's not this free-for-all. And he really made it sort of a free-for-all in that sense. In my estimation, I don't know how other people may have felt about it, but I realized it was affecting me to the point that one student said to me, oh, it's so good to see a smile. I take that class with you and I never see a smile once in that class because it was so tense. (laughs) And every time I would sit down to write poetry, that was being my mind, you know generic they're not gonna get it they don't know anything about zinc fences don't write about potholes in the roads no you know so I would just after I took up that class I never wrote poetry until my last semester when I went to AWP and I saw like a group of Caribbean writers and I told them the story and they said girl you're mad how can you make this man make you stop they were so annoyed that I had let that stop me from writing so yeah that idea of being 
different and being from another place and having all of these degrees of uh, separation and, you know, exclusion really affected me. And I realized that one way to channel it is to kind of put it in my my characters. So what did it mean to you when you finished your program, you had these stories and that you ultimately put them together into Motherland and other stories and were able to sell that to a publisher? How did that feel? Oh, that was, that was, that was a really wonderful feeling. It took some time because I graduated in May. And what year? 2018. And then by December, I had submitted, I had answered a call for submission for People Tree Press. So because I don't have an agent and I didn't try to get an agent at that time, I'm still kind of looking into that with the next project. Then I just submitted it on my own and just waited around. And, you know, it was like six months and I didn't hear anything. So I sent them a message and then they were like, the next month, they're like, oh, we are reading it with interest because I thought, Maybe I should send it to other places because you normally they they did allow simultaneous submissions, but I just didn't send it to anybody else because I figured People Tree was the best place because Caribbean, um, Black British, you know. And then uh, by July they were saying, you know, we we, we want to publish it, but do you have any more stories? Because you know it could be beefed up a little bit more. And I added some stories. And long story short, you know, after the year. Uh, they normally, you know, say by a year is when things would be, as you know. And so they had projected July of 2020. But then, of course, we all know what happened in 2020. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so it did not, it, they had to push it back, push it back. And then it came out in November in the in the UK. So that whole period was very rigorous but still thrilling because it meant they liked it they liked it you know that these mean something to them and they want it out in the world and what does this mean and you know and so it meant a lot to me that they they decided to you know bet on me and this work yeah I was looking at their website because I was like Pete Tree Press UK Why'd you go there? And I was like, so yes, small independent press based in the mm-hmm. UK that they started in 1985. They published it, they said about 20 books a year. So like in working with the small independent press, did you feel like your work was more nurtured? Uh, did you feel like it was a good environment? Did you get good advances? Like give oh. us give us the tea. <laughs> no advances because the, the I did not, expect it because I had looked into small presses and do you know what should you expect to get an advance so I did not get an advance and the contract was you know in line with what you normally get for small um, press and uh, so I was I was I was realistic about the outcome in terms of that but yeah I mean I would email the editor he I mean I'm sure that they wanted me to come there and to, you know, do things and have a big launch and everything. But 2020 was such an unusual year that it didn't happen that way. But I didn't feel any less, you know, um, valued in that sense. Because, for instance, I wanted to submit the work for 
a Caribbean prize and they're like, oh, we already submitted that. And, you know, so things like that made me feel like, okay, they know what they're doing. I don't know if I got individual attention to the point that they were, you know, constantly emailing me. No, it's still, they have lots of different, you know, projects going at once. It's a small team. So no, I didn't expect this constant communication. But when we did communicate, I did feel like they, they cared about the work and, you know, any kind of changes that the editor made, he would he let me know and, you know, send it to me to say, and I would, would, I would push back about a few things, but not most of the things I was like, okay, I see why I did that. So in that way, I, I don't have an experience. I wouldn't be able to compare it to what it's like working for a bigger publisher. So I couldn't give you that insight. I imagine it would be very different, but for my expectations, I didn't really have any super great expectations about how they would um, interact with me. But when they did, as I said, they, they didn't make me feel like I wasn't valued in any way. So there's that. So no major <laughs> issues. Well, that that's good. No issues. No, no bad things is, is good. Um, I should have asked you this earlier. Do you have your book close to you? I want you to, to I read. Do. Great, great, great. I want you to read a section from it. So while you find your section, I'm going to tee up with the description. So okay. Motherland and Other Stories mainly follows young Black women protagonists who become adventurers, explorers of the white world away from home, which at some points has been Jamaica. They include Roxanne, who starts work in a care home in London and strikes up a rapport with a depressed old man who used to be a writer. Io, who heads to college in Louisiana and fights off the internalized voice of her godly tambourine-beating aunt to begin an affair with an engaging, slightly older white man. There's Sophia who comes to work in Georgia and struggles to know whether her inability to engage more deeply with other people is really about racism or rather a more personally embedded reluctance. Other characters have to confront situations of their own making, like Angela returning from the USA for her mother's funeral, trying to find some points of contact with the now almost grown children she abandoned, or Melba who, after her husband dies, must confront the silence she has permitted in their marriage. There are a few stories about Caribbean men like the sophisticated lecturer, Mikkel, who meets up with an old flame at a literary conference or the more unpolished Beryl who keeps a secret that he feels will destroy his prospects in life or with women if anyone uncovers it. Wandika Gale, take it away. All right, so I debated which one to read because some people may have heard about Ayo's story. So I thought, let me read, you know, the first part of the book, Roxanne in Motherland. Roxanne ran her hand over her tunic and looked down at her sturdy white flats. She gazed out at the fog that hung like an omen over the street. She frowned at her reflection in the window. The damp made her short curls puffy and she had lost a few pounds so her collarbone jutted out against the starkness of her uniform. When she first arrived in London, she'd felt a surge of purpose and something akin to happiness. Maybe the towering old buildings, the tube and the double-decker red buses made her feel she'd moved on from red ground. She hadn't minded the perpetual cloudiness at first and the constant drinking of tea was comforting, even if there wasn't a sprig of fever grass or cerise bush like her granny used to make. You have to have steel in your blood if you're going over there, her father has said. 
it's not like out here at all at all. Don't frighten the child, Merlin, her granny had said. Well, some people think foreign is nice. Who feels it, knows it. He had gone to England in the 50s as a teenager to what he still referred to as the motherland. He returned to Jamaica in the 70s disillusioned. She had been born 10 years after his return when his resentment had crystallized into bitter rhetoric. Would he be turning in his grave if he knew she had followed his footsteps? This was her life. Besides, he had hardly been around, leaving her with her grandparents after Roxanne's mother died. It was them she missed the most. But there was no going back. There was no one to go back to. Six months before, she had looked down at her grandfather's face in the casket. How proper and polished he'd looked, hands crossed reverently across his chest. She had smiled to think how he could have laughed himself silly to see himself dressed in a crisp white shirt and a black pinstripe suit. Papa Jenkins had never worn a suit, even when he'd been forced to attend the Presbyterian church at the top of the hill. Twice in the 25 years he lived in red ground, with the eternal red stain of the Yam Hills. There was no sense in washing it off when he was going, to, he was going back to dig some more the next day. Papa's sister, Yvette, had offered to take her back with her to London after the funeral, and Roxanne had agreed. This was before she discovered she was more housekeeper than housekist. Ironing, washing, cooking, and cleaning. Finding a job and a flat of her own became an obsession. After three months, she was able to slip away. Now she was beginning to see beyond the museums and the quaint little cafes and long for the red dirt and her granny's cooking. She remembered that first morning at the care home when she popped her head in a room, looking for the office and saw some staff members holding down an old man who vehemently refused to take his medicine. She, she learned later that he had refused to take it because the new nurse was Nigerian. The Sunshine Nursing Home had near Gothic stone walls and a general dreariness. Some days she looked down the gloomy corridors and expected to see shadowy figures flitting down them. It would be an awful place to come to die. It was bad enough that she had to live above a middle-aged woman who stole the coins they needed to feed the electricity meter to buy her cigars, who insulted her at every turn. Do you practice voodoo or obia in Jamaica? Miss Carmen asked. What about marijuana? I don't think our landlady would like that one bit. The girls with whom she shared the upstairs rooms, American Fiona, Kenyan, Asha, assured her she would get used to Miss Carmen, but she never ceased to be amazed at the things that would roll out of the woman's mouth without seeming rancor. Dear me, those Asians can, can't speak to save their lives, but do they know how to but do know how to make those darling little dumplings. Those packies are taking over our street with their ramshack little shops. I love children about age two. Don't they look darling in their little jackets and mittens during the winter, even the little dark ones? And on and on. She better stop talking like that or one day I go and smack the dentures right out her head, Roxanne told Fiona. Fiona laughed. I just need to do one more semester and I'm getting the hell out of this house. You miss home too? Roxanne asked. Fiona smiled and turned gray eyes on her. They were stark in her brown face. She shrugged and slipped two giant hoops through her earlobes. I mean, I shouldn't say it like that, 
is not so bad with you here, she said. Besides, why stress when you can go dancing, right? You coming? Rakshan shook her head and began to peel off her uniform. Um, I had to hold myself back from laughing when you said she's going to smack the dentures out of her face. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's indicative of how so many Black people feel when they come against those microaggressions from white people and the white people seem to be oblivious to them. And so one of the things you say about this book is that, you know, it's how to navigate the white world. How do you navigate the right world? Is it with reluctance? Is it with intrigue or is it with something else? Um, At first it was with ignorance because as a Caribbean national, I didn't recognize a lot of the, as you talk about microaggressions, some things I thought, oh, well, that person is rude and not that this is a culture that people had. And so I used to think, and I'm ashamed of myself, that African-Americans were hypersensitive because I felt like, I mean, I have, you know, I had relatives who had been here for a while and they'd be like, is the reason that you're talking to me like because I'm black? Is that?" And I would think, I didn't see the person do anything. So it's this invisibility that makes you so insane because when you turn to people and say, this is what's happening, do you notice that she didn't even want to touch my hand? Yeah, it happens still that, you know, people have this kind of feeling about you or even when it's positive. Like when a professor would go on and on about how great something is, after a while, when it sits with you, you say, well, what did they expect? Did it just like thwart their feelings about you that you have somehow, because you show yourself to be good at what you do, they're surprised, you know? So it kind of messes with you that way. So it's, it's something I think you have to experience because I'm coming from a black majority country with its own issues of color and class, but it's not that we're coming from a legacy of, Jim Crow, segregation, you know, and my mom, when she came here, you know, just to study and she went back, she came and um, a classmate, a roommate said to her, oh, I'm so upset. Something had happened. And she said she didn't want to go work in the dining hall. And my mom said, well, can I get your shift? You know, because for her, it was like, we got to come here, work, 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 work. We got to make this money. We have to, you know, pay our tuition. We have to, you know, so it wasn't like she was thinking along the lines of, oh, this person may be experiencing these kind of underlying racist behavior. And it's something that you realize over time. So that was my experience is that you live here for a while, you start to realize because something like that happened to me in the sense that, I, you know, I was falsely arrested. I went to a right aid and it was just after I graduated. Big PhD, feeling myself, but also (laughs) broke. Went to a right aid. I'd go go to a conference the next day. I said, you know what? I'm going to write it because I can use this card there. Walked around and then there was this um, idea, the, 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 I paid for my stuff and went outside and I saw police cars, but I just looked up and was like, oh, I guess something is going on. But then they stopped me and told me that they needed to, you know, investigate something. And then the lady started to read me my rights. I'm like, what? I think there is a comp. I was at first like thinking, oh, 
this is a mistake. I don't know what's going on. Turns out that the manager believed that I had shoplifted and called them without ever interrogating me, without ever stopping, without ever checking me. Three police officers came. They all checked my, you know, handcuff, one of them handcuffed me, put me in the car while they searched. And then, of course, they had to release me because I had, and I remember the, the, <laughs> the receipt was as long as my forearm and they were ticking off things as I went along. So I was just like, what made her think that I stole anything? Because I did not, you know, I, I didn't give her any reason to think that. So it must, and then I, that was when I was like, you know, there's only one variable. I am this black girl in a pharmacy shopping and nobody would give me the decency to say, let me check. I have this suspicion that's unfounded, but let me check before I call down the whole police. So those kinds of things, you know, I mean, at that point, of course, I knew what was going on. That was like 2018. So I came in 2009. So by then, of course, you know what you you only have that naivety for a short time. Yeah, nine years of dealing with white racism. Yeah. You, you recognize it pretty quickly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, who was the hardest character to write in the book? Ah, let me look at that to see. I don't know. Who was the hardest character? That's a good question. Just because you put so much of you in it? Like right. some, some of these stories had to be a little difficult. I think Melba, Melba, because in the story of Melba, she uh, is, it starts with the death of her husband. But we realize that she's not mourning just his death. She's mourning the marriage because she did not, you know, press him. There was a lot of silences. There are a lot of things that he was dissatisfied with that she never explored. And the reason that I even framed it the way I did is that I used to take the bus when I was in Louisiana, the Lafayette City bus, and I'd see a, a little lady on the bus all the time. And then I realized that she would get on the bus and she would never get off. She would just take the route all day long. So if I took the same bus, I would see that lady. And so I started to imagine, well, what would be their life? You know, what if she were a black woman in her 50s? What if she was from the Caribbean? What if she, her husband had issues and didn't want to talk about them? What if she had lost all her children through, you know, a tragedy? And when I started to write that, you know, it, it, it's hard because you want the person to be real you don't want them to just seem like a tragic figure you don't want them to seem like a victim you want them to seem like a real person with real issues but also what can what is it concerned with what am I concerned with telling by telling her story so I had to think about that for a while you know um I don't I don't know I mean that's a really good I've never been asked that question I don't you know the idea of what's the hardest one but yeah I mean she talks too. She talks about, you know, being in the school system and being a teacher and also having this idea that I'm being treated differently because I am a black woman in her memory. Because we meet her when she's on this bus all the time, you know, sort of as a reaction to grief at loss of her husband and after having lost her children 10 years prior. So, yeah. No, but, I, 
I asked about, well, I asked the question about who was the hardest, but you saying Melba is interesting because reading the description and it's saying, you know, she has to confront the silence she permitted in her marriage. I was like, ooh, that's a read. (laughs) Because when when you're married, you make compromises, whether intentional or not, about what you will say or what you won't say. And those things add up over the years. So I was like, mm, I wonder what that story is about. Cause yeah. that might hit close <laughs> to some people's homes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, it's interesting that the editors phrase it that way when they're, they're, they're writing the description, because that is true. The idea that she doesn't push back when you think, when you look back on her thinking about her marriage as she's, you know, traversing the whole of Lafayette in this bus every day. She's thinking about the fact that she didn't really push back. She really wanted to go home many times and he wouldn't because they couldn't. And also because, you know, I I don't want to give too much away if you guys want to read it, but just that idea of he is not communicating enough with her. She needs something from him. Is she going to ask him, you know, is she going to press, press, you know, and, and many women do that because they want to keep the peace because they have kids to kind of fill up the spaces. But when the kids are gone through tragedy or through growing up, what do you do? Do you just kind of, you know, stay in this in this state? So that's that's why I think we begin that story that way, where it begins with his death, because she has to confront it now that he's gone. You know, there I reminds mean, me, reminds me of a story I think I read in high school, the story of an hour. Where yeah. the woman yeah. it, she thinks her husband is dead, and then at right. the very end of the story, she comes and home. Then that's a hard to that when she realizes he's not. So it's yeah, like- yeah. <laughs> it, you describing it reminds me of that story. Yeah, yeah. Because um, the, the 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 thing is that you do. Ha- I mean, I'm not married, so I'm just speaking from observation. Um, the things that you see. In order for you, it's sort of like what my mom says, and I'm sure maybe other black moms say it, choose the mountain to die on. Is this your mountain to die on? Then, you know, probably don't pick this battle, you know? So that kind of thing where because of that sentiment, you just say, all right, maybe I just like, it's all right. Maybe I don't need it. Maybe I can supply my own needs in other ways. And, you know, so... I didn't know until you asked me, but yeah, Melba really struck a chord with me in that way. Um, I mean, and, and Roxanne too, because that story took me years because there's so many drafts and I, I couldn't figure out what she wanted. I couldn't figure out what I was saying with her, you know, her being there and not having anybody, you know, and trying to think, well, can I find family in somebody else like I met this depressed old white man who is in this nursing home and no longer writes you know (laughs) is this my family now so I suppose that was how I had to come to that over over time what story did you connect with the most ah I just had a conversation with somebody about finding joy and and said it's not me I'm not the one in the story (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not I am not but I connected with her because I understood maybe because the setting is that she went to this is Ayo in finding joy she goes to Louisiana to school and she has a very religious background and I am the daughter of a retired minister. So I understand that whole world. And so she feels kind of suffocated 
by that and she wants to find herself um but it means that she would have to break a lot of rules or she want to do that and so i think i understand her because i you know always questioning always thinking about well uh, I, i i value them i respect them but i don't think it's right and um you know sexuality should not be seen as this sinfulness you know this is a celebration of self and womanhood and coming into your own so i think in that way i think i understood her that was why i could write her because even though i am not her <laughs> i definitely understand where she is she's coming from with that i keep hearing um the 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 stories of like displacement and disillusionment um do you still have those feelings now that you've been in the states so long yeah and it's funny because at a conference somebody asked that question about the literature of the caribbean when will we ever stop singing that note and Hmm. i say we can't because it's constant you're always even if you are not it's not your caribbeanness it's another thing it's your blackness it's your femaleness so you do constantly feel all of the things and if you're at this intersection of all of those things you feel them all at once sometimes so i think that i understand how to navigate because i understand microaggressions i understand you know picking battles i understand how to respond, understand those things. But the emotional thing is sort of like, and I hate to be crass, but it's sort of like when I say to people, if you have really bad menstrual cramps, it doesn't matter how many years, 14 years, every single time, unless you take medication, you're going to feel it, right? So it's sort of like that where it's a constant, you know it, you expect, you understand everything about it, you have this done, but it's sort of like, you 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 can't get used to pain. You can't get used to exclusion. The good thing is that you can find balance by connecting. So having family, talking about these things helps. You know, having these kind of conversations where we say them so people are like, oh, well, I'm not alone then. It's not weird for me to feel this way. Um, misconceptions that people have even about the Caribbean even among um, black people in America from different places Africa there is the whole idea of well appropriation because we don't let's say African-Americans may not know everything about where they are individually from but they adopt these things like for instance right now I'm wearing this and you know it, it signals something but then you know you think about all of these different um, events that you attend and you see all of these wonderful array of black power and pride but then some Africans are like well that's what our tribe does are you taking you know so there are all of these different things that between the groups that are not always in sync you know and so people look at me and say oh you're from Jamaica that means you lived by the beach and your life was easy and you why are you even here you know so I don't know I mean you always feel homesick for certain things. And so you supplement it. That's why if you have any Caribbean friends, you know that they do it through food, clothing, music, conversation, and me through literature. So that's a way of calling back to where you're from to say, you know, I haven't forgotten. I'm still tethered to you. I'm still, and I, and I know that I'm not fully who I used to be. Because when I go home, 
And the funny thing is when you go home as a Caribbean person and you've been away for a long time, local people know. They say, foreigner. <laughs> they say, you, you, you are like, yeah, yes, you're a yardy, but you're a foreign yardy, you know? So there's that too. You don't fit squarely back into where you used to be. So the, the minute you leave, you, you've become changed. You become displaced. But there's also a constant, if you have a constant connection back to where you're from. And in our generation, we find that that happens easier because you have like air travel, you have Skype, you have WhatsApp, you know, you have all of these things that keep you connected. So you can feel okay when you're away. You can feel okay when you're there, but just know that you're not the same person anymore. That's, mm. that's what I would say. Okay. I want to do a quick speed round before we go for, okay. for, for our time. So uh, what's your favorite book? Ah, I would say, I mean, I always say Becca Lam because it's the first book that I was introduced to by Z. Edgill, uh, a Billy's writer. I really, really like that book. And who is your favorite author? It's a tie between Edwidge Danticat and Elizabeth Nunes. I met Elizabeth Nunes. I've yet to meet Edwidge Danticat. So <laughs> I'm leaning more towards Elizabeth Nunes. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite song? My favorite song. Oh my gosh. I like a lot of instrumental music, but I also love Rihanna. I don't know if that makes me basic, but there's <laughs> <laughs> nothing basic about Rihanna, so that's fine. <laughs> I love her swagger. I love I love her music. I mean, she hasn't made any music in a while, but you know. No, but she she's been doing lots of other things. Oh yes, <laughs> oh I'm not knocking it at all. I'm just yeah kidding. the whole beauty. Yeah. She's got that on lock. Um, oh, you know who Tanya Stevens is a Jamaican singer. I love her too. I mean, there are lots of them, but yeah. Go on. What's your favorite movie? Um, favorite movie. It's a it's Ever After, which is weird. I don't. Is this like super white? <laughs> Cinderella story but the only reason it comes to mind is that when I was a kid we didn't have cable and we had a VCR and we watched that movie over and over and over and over and over so I mean maybe I was a teenager by that point but I think Ever After is one of my favorite movies so you talked about your experience um getting your PhD in Lafayette and going through that program and kind of giving that to your characters you now teach at Spelman College. So what's the best part of teaching at an HBCU? You don't have to brace all the time. I taught in Utah just before coming here. Ooh. So yeah, like <laughs> night and day. <laughs> Where there were my colleagues were really welcoming. I liked them, you know, but the students were a wild card because they were very, very polite. And that took me off guard. And so when I read their evaluations, it was like a complete switch. So they wouldn't tell me to my face because they're so polite. It's part of, a lot of them are Mormon. So it's a lot of them uh, respect for authority, you know, and they have their own personal feelings that they will never share with you unless they don't have to put a name or anything. Mm. Um, so definitely being a, I was the only black professor on that campus. Ooh. Yes, there were like, there were, you know, people of color, a few people of color and we'd meet. Because there were a few of us who were like, listen, we got to meet and know each other. 
Um, but here, I don't have to, I don't feel I always have to explain, you know, you know, I, I, the best way I can think of it is brace the idea of, um, I know that they may come with some things or how do I react? Because in Utah, there was a student who wrote about a black character at the center of his story, which I thought was a brave move, but then he used all the negative tropes about, you know, he is this black character who is a troubled absentee father, you know, poor mother, hardworking, not paying attention, all of those things. And I had to bring to them writing the other. And so at Spellman, I can talk to them about writing the other, but in a different kind of way where they're thinking about, well, don't perpetuate things, but also don't make it seem as though everyone is opposed to you at, at the same time too. But also it's great because it's black women and we can talk about things that relate to us. I can center things um, just on their demographic with an understanding that they still have to be prepared for the outside world, but we can celebrate their blackness and celebrate their, you know, being women or however they identify, you know? So that's been good because even like, for instance, the, as I said, in, when I was in Louisiana teaching and the composition class was multiculturalism as a theme and there was pushback here, I centered the whole class as a theme of black women and identity. Mm. And it, because it was so relate, it, it's something they could relate to. And also, Many of them had come from schools where they didn't get to read about themselves. They don't know. I mean, they have to read what the general class is. And so some things they don't really know. And so it was an opportunity to kind of explore that and in their fiction and their poetry. And so that that's been good. I mean, but don't get it twisted. They are very opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> I was I wouldn't expect anything less from the ladies. Very opinionated. And you see, like how I was saying, like in Utah, some of the students would never tell you, you wouldn't even know that they don't like you because they're so polite. These girls that are women, they they'd say, Well, I disagree with, you know, and they would say why. And and so that was refreshing in that way, but sometimes it's a double-edged sword because, you know. <laughs> You open that box and let him strongly about. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's one lesson you hope to impart to all your students? That it's okay to, and I know it's generic, but be yourself because I had to learn that lesson in that class. Be yourself or celebrate yourself because I felt like why I couldn't write my poetry anymore, even though I was there to write fiction, was that what I cared about or what I, how I saw the world was somehow wrong and didn't fit into the status quo. So I had to conform, you know, and, and there was a student in that class who did say to me, I know that you are trying to reach for universality because he saw me leaning in that direction because of the feedback. And he's like, listen, sometimes you can get an appeal by being particular writing about your own experiences or things that, you know, you observe in a way people, you'd be surprised how many people who have a different background may say, well, I can relate to one of your characters, even though I'm not black, I'm not female, or I'm not Caribbean because I've gone through this too. So you'd be surprised how sometimes the particular can have universality. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say, like, what do you care about? What do you want to focus on? 
and explore that because that's where you'll get the passion. Because many times when they're coming from high school, some of them, they're told this is what you're going to research. But here I give them the autonomy to choose a topic within this kind of theme or sphere that we're talking about and focus on it because you care about it. So that when you sit down to do your research, it's not like pulling tears because you care about it, you know? So that's, I mean, focus on what you care about and it's okay to be yourself. I know that's pretty generic sounding, but that's what I want them to do. What motivates you? Ah, I don't, I mean, in some way, I wouldn't be a Caribbean person raised by a Caribbean parents if I didn't say that I want to make my family proud. That's also in there. <laughs> I don't want, I want them to understand me and feel proud about the decisions that I make. And that motivates me. But, you know, just to really see people for who they are and try to explore that, that's, that's where I am. I think that's what motivates me. That's what makes me think about, well, what do I want to write about? Even if it's not creative and it's more, it's purely research. It's like, what do I want to, you know, share about how I view the world? And so I think that motivates me to do it well, be thorough, be compassionate. You know? What's your favorite Jamaican dish? Oh, there's so many. oh i think because i don't have it as much i love aki and sawfish yes it's the national dish but when you are here you don't like i was in utah they didn't have any aki they didn't have any sawfish here you can get sawfish and you can get aki in atlanta you know so yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, that's my that's my favorite i mean the favorite thing to cook though is stewed peas like I think what how you guys say here is um red beans and rice. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a spin on that where we say rice and stew peas. But it's basically red beans and, beans rice. and rice. So I yeah. love I love that. And I like to make red beans and rice. <laughs> <laughs> and all the places that you've lived, what has been the best? Oh, it's always gonna be Jamaica, but then you don't, have, I, you don't have to have any buts because it's Jamaica, okay. period. <laughs> Listen, if I had loads of money and opportunities, I'd, I probably would still be there. But it's, the, the thing is that you don't, you, you, you know, you have more opportunities in America, especially for publishing, you know. Um, so there's that. But if that wasn't in question and money wasn't in question, definitely it would be Jamaica. It would. And... Well, I mean, that just makes my last question mute. Moot. I was going to say one place you would move to that you have not le- lived yet, but you want to oh, go back. I haven't, oh, where I haven't lived yet? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I would love, I, I haven't been there, obviously, but I see people posting about Thailand mm-hmm. and the, the cost of living is lower. It's tropical in a way. So I, I definitely moved there. I was researching about um korea and um japan but of course you know i also saw a lot of those videos where they say if you're a black woman and you move to korea uh just be mindful that (laughs) you're going to be an oddity and people are going to stare at you and you know and maybe even some of them have misguided ideas about black people anyway Mm -hmm. but you know definitely thailand looks good okay 
And so my last question for our interview today is that you have spent your career writing stories and researching and doing all this work. And you have your short story collection out now. You're going to write a novel and do more stuff. Right. So one day when you're dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about your legacy? Oh, that she was honest and expressed the truth about experience because wherever you're from, whatever you are, you know, your background is, if somebody can say, I believed what she wrote and it was meaningful because it taught me something, I think that's, that's important. You know, I, I'd hate to think about my own demise, but yeah, I would want people to say, yeah, she really told it like it was, but it was said in a, in, it was compelling and it moved me and ha- made me interrogate my own life and how I treat people. And I can now empathize because that's a big thing. Now I'm noticing that in order for, you know, people to really understand, they have to really empathize and put themselves in your position. So that's lacking in a lot of ways. People don't. They're like, well, doesn't bother me. Not my issue. But if they really say, wow, I didn't know it was so difficult for um, a, a Caribbean person to come here or a black person to exist in America or, you know, I'm not any of those things. But OK, now I really understand it because that's what literature does. It shows how people feel. Of course, history says this is what happens, but literature is this is how they felt about it. You know, so I, I hope people get that. For my work. Awesome. Well, Wandika Gale, thank you so much for joining me today on Black and Published. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really good. Anytime. Big thank you to Wandika for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out her latest short story collection, Motherland and Other Stories, now available in the U.S. And if you're not following her, follow Wandika on the socials. She's at Wandika Gale Art on Instagram and Facebook. That's W-A-N-D-E-K-A-G-A-Y-L-E-A-R-T on Instagram and Facebook, Wandika Gale Art. And she's just Wandika Gale on Twitter. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, which I know you do, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. You can also leave us a rating, a review, Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show, all of that. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's B-L-K and Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holler at y'all next time. Peace. (laughs) 